Welcome to episode 133 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is The First 40 Miles. Today on The First 40 Miles, if a news story didn't involve the latest political scandal or secret missile launch, it probably didn't even make it above the fold. Fortunately, we've found a handful of stories that we think you'll find twice as interesting as what's on the front page. Then the Summit Gear Review will feature a handy waterproof stuff sack that can hold anything from muddy hiking shoes to all the fixins for a campfire dinner. Next, a simple way to give peanut butter a flavor makeover. All this, and that's about it. Today on the first 40 miles. So Josh, have you noticed that news seems to be on a repeat cycle? Yeah, same old stuff. Exactly, which is ironic because it's literally called the news. And we keep seeing a lot of the same things over and over to the point where I don't really even check the news anymore because I know it's going to be like the top three same type of headlines. However, if you delve a little bit deeper into the news, sometimes you'll find that gem of a story, something that really relates to you and things that you're interested in, such as search and rescue cats. These are the things that didn't make it to the front page, but things that we actually found interesting. And if you're just paying attention to missile launches and Twitter attacks, then you might miss some things that might actually affect you as a backpacker. So here's our top five list of backpacking in the news for spring 2017. For our first story, what do you get if you take an acorn, a mouse, and a tick and put them together? Is this a joke? Well, it sounds like a joke, but it's not. It's Lyme disease. Believe it or not, a bumper crop of acorns in the U.S. is going to lead to an uptick in uh, uptick, haha, in Lyme disease. <laughs> and the reason is the increase in acorn production is going to support a larger population of mice, and mice are the carriers of the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. The ticks get on the mice, so there will be more mice for the ticks to get on. And the story said, how many, how many ticks can be carried on a mouse? Um, one mouse alone can carry hundreds of immature ticks. Ugh. And so they can all get the Lyme disease uh, bacteria from the mouse. And then, of course, when the tick gets on you and starts sucking your blood, then the bacteria that causes Lyme disease is now transferred to you. So both the mouse and the tick are carriers in this process, all supported by a bumper crop of acorns. That's incredible. And you might be thinking like, well, why don't they just make a vaccine for Lyme disease? Wouldn't that work? Well, they did. Limericks was taken off the market way back in 2002. A new vaccine is in the works, but it's several years away before it will be available to the public. Yeah, in the article it said it's at least six years from being released to the public. 
This trend of acorns feeding mice and then the populations growing and then the tick population growing, it's not something that just happens in the U.S. It's actually happening in Poland also. So last year in Poland, they had a bumper crop of acorns and then the mouse population will surge this year. And then next year, they're expecting an uptick in Lyme disease. So it's kind of this this long cycle, this three-year cycle. And so you have a little bit of a heads up, you have a little bit of a warning, but it's still uh, Lyme disease is a serious disease. Uh, in the article, it says that about 300,000 Americans are diagnosed with Lyme disease each year. And it's not the kind of thing where you throw up for 24 hours and then you're fine. It's serious. And those symptoms or the, you know, the repercussions of Lyme disease can last a lifetime. So now you know 2017 is going to be a big year for ticks. So this is probably something we should talk about in an upcoming episode, ticks and Lyme disease. It's not something fun, but it's relevant this year. Yeah, true. Okay, explain this second article to me. The title says that someone's hand got blown off on the Appalachian Trail. Yeah, so the man was trying to start a campfire. He grabbed the wrong substance out of his backpack and it exploded. Now, I think the interesting thing about this story is that it is so short and contains so little information that like really all we have to go on is the title and there's, you know, a teeny bit of information. I want to know the rest of the story. What happened? What was this? substance that he pulled out of his pack. Was it a fuel canister? That's my first guess yeah. and, and about my only guess. I've been racking my mind trying to think, what else would someone pull out of their pack for the purpose of starting a campfire that would explode like that? Yeah. I, there's just so many things that we don't know. Another one of the clues in the story was that the explosion happened around 10.20 p.m., which is kind of late late at night to be starting a campfire. Plus, it was in the middle of March when it happened, so the sun had been down for a few hours. So I'm kind of wondering what other elements were part of this story. Like, had he arrived in camp late? You know, was he tired? Was he just not thinking? Was he with other people? Had they tried to start a fire? Was he hypothermic? You know, what what were the what's the real story? I'm just dying to know what it is. But, you know, unfortunately, this this ended in tragedy. The explosion shattered the man's hand. And uh, the article said that doctors will probably not try to reattach it. Yeah, that's too bad. I, I do wish we knew the rest of the story. And, and sometimes you wonder when you get such a short uh, news article, you know, there can be just one or two key details that are perhaps misreported and you'd never know. Was he trying to start a campfire? Or at 10.20 p.m., had the campfire already been going for hours? Or did he think the campfire was out and decided to set a butane canister there in the fire pit to uh, light up his stove? Uh, you know, it, yeah. just one key detail being off could really throw you in a different direction in terms of figuring out what happened. Yeah, and I think part of good reporting is reporting in such a way that we can all learn from the story and so that it doesn't happen to the rest of us. And unfortunately, there is not enough information in here to really grab onto. It's like one of those unsatisfying news stories. Um, so if anyone does know the rest of the story, or if you've seen like a follow-up article, we would love to know 
what happened. And you know, one of the reasons that maybe there's not a lot of information is because there may be an investigation and maybe there was, you know, something else that we don't know about. Maybe the police were involved. I don't know. Yeah. So for now, all we can learn from this story is um, don't grab the quote unquote wrong substance when you're lighting a campfire. I guess so. Yeah. This next story I just loved because it was about why cats might make skilled search and rescue animals. And if you read the article about halfway down, it even implies that perhaps rats may make even better search and rescue animals. Anyway, the article is mostly about cats and their incredible ability to sniff things and just detect scents. So I guess there are three different types of receptor proteins that mammals have. There's V1Rs, V2Rs, and FPRs. And cats have around 30 of the V1Rs compared to dogs, which have just nine. And humans have just two. It says rats beat them all with an incredible 120 V1Rs. Wow. And you've heard about rats detecting landmines and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess cats are a little more trainable. And in the article, it talks about the training process of cats, how you have to figure out, are they more motivated by play? You know, that extra playtime. Or are they motivated by something like a delicious can of tuna? Probably something a little different than dog treats. So I guess they got to figure that out. And I'm sorry, but I just can't get out of my mind that video that I saw a few years ago of these guys who were cat herders, you know, and it was a day in the life of a cat herder. They're on their horses and, you know, it's like they, they basically substituted cats for cows in the in this video. It's just all like a spoof. Yeah. Well, I guess that's what it would be like to train cats. You get them out on the ranch, get them all dusty, dirty, sweaty, and, and rope them up and bring them in. Wow. Oh, yeah. So another reason that cats would be a really great search and rescue animal is because they can do things that dogs can't necessarily do. They can squeeze into tight places. They're great climbers, and um, they have really great balance. And these are really great characteristics for a search and rescue animal. And wouldn't you rather be found by a cuddly cat than uh, a Rather dog? than a dog coming along and barking. I guess so. I, <laughs> Definitely not a rat, though. I no. Do, do no. not want to be found no, by you. a rat. <laughs> Rescued by a rat. <laughs> That's just weird. Yeah. These last two articles are a little more closely connected with backpacking. <laughs> not so obscure as cat search and rescue. But um, this next one is about bikepacking. Bikepacking is kind of like backpacking, except instead of hiking with just the pack on your back, you have a bike that is loaded in a balanced way and you bike the trail. And it's differentiated from bike touring where you're on pavement and you have these large saddlebags on the back of your bike. Uh, You take a lot of space and you might have a pretty heavy bike that's really beefed up for all that weight and you're cruising along down the highway or some country road. Bike packing, on the other hand, is going on trails where you would be going with a mountain bike, except you are carrying your gear on that mountain bike as well. And a bikepacking bike itself is usually lighter than most bikes, some as little as 10 pounds. 
And they have the same kind of mentality as backpackers too, in that you're trying to get everything as light as possible, just the essentials, but make it as light as possible. But I think that Outside Magazine went a little over the top in 2015 when they said that bikepacking would replace backpacking as the primary means for moving through and camping in the backcountry. Yeah, that was an interesting comment. I kind of wonder what led them to think that. I mean, biking is a hugely popular sport. Lots of people love biking. Lots of people love backpacking. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the two are, you know, that it's a natural marriage of ideas. It's not like you can add all of the cyclists to all of the backpackers, where all of the cyclists start bikepacking and all of the backpackers also start bikepacking. That's not going to happen. So a lot of the gear may be the same, but you're not just getting on your bike with your backpack on your back. Your bike is going to have three main bags. One is behind you. Then you have another bag on the frame, kind of behind the handlebars, and then another bag in the front. And one of the quotes from the article that I found interesting said, you may end up carrying your bike more than you ride it. And we totally had this experience when we went to our secret backpacking spot on the BLM land. The first time we went there as a whole family, all four kids brought their bikes. And because the trail was pretty rough and there were a lot of little up and down hills that weren't really challenging for a hiker, they were challenging for bikes. Um, The kids would get off their bikes and walk them over the hills. So if you think that bikepacking is going to be like, oh, I'm going to go all these miles and I'll, you know, see all these places even twice as fast, that might not actually happen. You might be going just as slow as the hiker behind you because you'll be walking your bike. And when you do have to walk your bike, you don't have the advantage of having all the weight on your back in a nice pack that's well adjusted. The weight is all being pushed by your arms as you push your bike along. So... If you're going to spend at least as much time walking the bike as you are riding the bike, to me that's pretty hard to justify. However, I guess there could be certain trails where you could really get cruising along. Oh, yeah. And if that's the case, then you could cover a lot of miles in a day and see a lot of country, and that would be pretty cool, I guess. Uh, I just, I'm picturing the trails that we've gone on in our backpacking trips. Take the Tillamook head hike from a few weeks ago. Can you imagine trying to carry a bike through those mud pits? Oh, yeah, that would have been impossible for sure. I would have given up and just stashed it in the bushes. So I guess if bikepacking does appeal to some first 40 milers, then, I mean, the only thing you'd have to do is change out your pack for some bags and then find a trail that's really suitable for bikepacking, because it sounds like it all kind of comes down to the trail. You want a trail that's long and flat. And then one of the really cool things about doing bikepacking is that if you're going to be doing a long tour, like, you know, hundreds of miles, you have the opportunity to take your bike into town. So you can actually get off the trail Do some, you know, in-town stuff, maybe do some laundry, do some touring around in town, and you'll be able to get there fast. So I like that aspect of bikepacking. Well, if any of our listeners have done it, we'd love to hear how you selected trails and how your experience was. Yeah, and what the gear differences were, because it sounds like it's just basically a bike with different packs, but everything else could be the same as with backpacking. This last story 
the title kind of cracked me up because it was one of those clickbaity type titles where you're like, no, the title says Rainier stops taking Wonderland trail reservations after record number of requests. So it sounds like they're shutting down the trail, like no more hikers. We're shutting this thing down. Mountain closed. But really, the article just talks about how the window is closed. We're taking trail reservations in the month of March. They have this two-week window where you can apply for your trip permit around the mountain. And then if you really, really want to go around the mountain, they reserve a whole bunch of passes so you can show up the day of and ask for a pass. This is a classic example of an article title that is technically correct but misleading because they did receive a record number of requests. And the two-week window for requests did close. And the record number of requests was received prior to the closure of the request window. So yes, technically correct. They stopped taking reservations after a record number of requests. But they did not stop taking reservations because of a record number of requests, which is what it implies as we read it. That's what we think in our minds. Nope. Reservation window was open from March 15th to March 31st, and they did receive a record number of requests, uh, nearly 6,000 requests, which is more than double the record set in 2015. And why are we skipping 2016? Well, it's because they put a new reservation system in place, but in 2016, it was all broken, and they couldn't process any requests at all. So really, they're probably getting a record number of requests this year because they had a system that actually worked. Yeah, in the past, backpackers had to either fax or snail mail in their trip permit request. Who faxes anymore? What? Yeah, where can we find a fax? I think you have to go to the library. I think maybe they have a a fax behind the desk Hmm. or maybe a bank title company. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe you can use one of those uh, email to fax gateway things Uh, where you you send an email and then it converts it to a fax. But why? (laughs) I don't know. So there are options if you want to hike the Wonderland Trail around Mount Rainier. They hold back 30% of their backcountry space on a first come, first serve basis. And you can get those permits no more than one day before the trip. So basically, you show up the day of your trip and hope that they haven't uh, burned through their quota for that day. And if they have, I guess maybe you spend the night in a hotel and try again the next morning. Well, that is our news roundup for this week. We hope you enjoyed those five crazy stories. And if you want to find more backpacking stories, the way that we found ours was we used Google News and we set certain words to bring up all the stories that have to do with those words. So backpacking, search and rescue. I have national parks and national forests. I think I even have wildfires and expeditions. I mean, you can put any word in there and it'll bring up stories that have that word in the title. And that was the Backpack Hack of the Week in episode 58. So you can check out the first40miles.com slash 058. Scroll down to the bottom of the show notes for that backpacking hack. with A little more details about how to use Google News and also a bonus hack. Ooh, a bonus hack. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love it. And we'll have links to all of today's news articles in today's show notes at thefirst40miles.com slash 133. For today's Summit Gear Review, we will be reviewing the Matador Droplet. 
This is a little waterproof bag that is small enough to fit on a keychain, yet large enough for a day's worth of food or your muddy hiking clothes or wet gear or dry gear that you want to keep from getting wet. Do you remember that we mentioned the Matador Droplet on episode 44? Episode 44, you'll have to refresh my memory. Well, it was a Ready for Adventure segment. Oh, 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 oh. Ah, the one with the sick kids. I remember one where we talked about a family, or I guess two moms that went out hiking with kids, and um, kind of a, a, we set up this scenario where one of the kids got sick, and you know, how would you deal with this? And one of the things we talked about was how to move large amounts of water around with a very small container. And this was one of the options. That's a great way to use the Matador Droplet. So the Matador Droplet is a little waterproof bag that stuffs into a little silicone case that's shaped like a droplet of water. And that case has a little slit in it. And from that slit, you can pull out a small three liter waterproof drawstring sack. It's kind of like the magician pulling the um, handkerchiefs right. uh, out of something really tiny. <laughs> The Matador Droplet has a little ring on the top so you can attach a carabiner to it and just attach it onto the outside of your pack. For utility, the Matador Droplet is made with a waterproof fabric. It's not technically a dry bag because it doesn't have a waterproof closure like one of those roll-top closures. Uh, however, keep in mind that if something is waterproof, that means not only can it keep water out, but it can keep water in which is why it showed up in that Ready for Adventure segment in episode 44. You could fill it with water, and it would keep the water in. And the other cool thing about the droplet is that it's reusable. A zip-top bag, yeah, you might get a couple uses out of it. It doesn't really compress very well when you're not using it. So the Matador droplet is much better in that sense. Compresses down nicely inside of that silicone container, and you can use it over and over. The Matador Droplet only weighs 0.5 ounces, or 15 grams. And when the stuff sack is removed from the silicone case, it measures 8.5 inches by 11 inches, or, you know, about the size of a piece of paper. When it's stuffed into its little blue silicone droplet, it measures about 2 inches by 1.5 inches. About the size of a ping pong ball? Yeah, it's really small and it's super lightweight, which means it's going to be hardly noticeable in your pack or on the outside of your pack. As far as maintenance goes, you'll just want to hand wash it and hang it out to dry and keep it out of the reach of children because it is a waterproof bag and all waterproof bags are a risk with young children. Or suffocation. Huh? Right. Yep. Mm. For investment, the Matador Droplet is $15. And for trial, the droplet is light enough that it really makes sense to just toss it into your 10 essentials so that you have that emergency reusable stuff sack. And if you've been backpacking before, you know how valuable bags are. You just use them for everything, whether it's to hold something wet that you want to keep away from your dry stuff, or you're collecting things, or you're just trying to reorganize your gear. Stuff sacks are so valuable and this is just the perfect size. It's so small, it just hangs on the outside of your pack. It's very compact, it's reusable, and the bag stuffs right into this little silicone container when you're done using it. 
And we think Matador just makes some really clever products. So this droplet, it's just a great creative design. On previous episodes, we've reviewed the Matador Mini Pocket Blanket, which we love and take on lots of trips. That was in episode 65. And we reviewed the Matador Daylight 16 Day Pack on episode 114. But what was really cool is we actually got to talk with Jamie on the show in episode 112. That was our Outdoor Innovators episode. So if you want to hear Jamie's story, you know, the story behind the company Matador, check out episode 112. For today's Backpack Hack of the Week, flavored nut butters. Plain old peanut butter is a backpacking staple. It has 167 calories an ounce, and it works well on sandwiches, tortillas, or you could even mix it into like a savory bowl of noodles and put some red pepper flakes in there too, kind of make it that peanut Thai style noodle dish. But even the most devoted peanut butter lovers can get a little burnt out on constant peanut butter, you know, that constant PB drip. So if you're planning on bringing a jar of peanut butter, there are some things that you can do to it that can kind of mix things up, give it some texture, which is what peanut butter is sadly lacking, and give it just a little kick of flavor. So in order to do this, you need to make sure that your jar of peanut butter is about three-fourths full or one-quarter empty, depending on what type of person you are. And you can add in any of the following, and I'm just going to list this off. And whatever jumps out at you, that's what you should add to your next jar of peanut butter. Maple syrup, honey, crushed pretzels, crisp rice cereal, roasted hazelnuts, Nutella, crushed dried banana chips, dried cranberries, turbinado sugar, crushed crackers, cinnamon, cream cheese frosting, sprinkles, chia seeds, coconut flakes, cardamom, flax meal, or bacon. Any of these add-ins will break up the monotony and you'll have a party in your peanut butter. Party in your peanut butter. (laughs) That's a nice ring to it. I know. If I ever start up a company, it'll be called Party in Your Peanut Butter. All right. Yeah. So you can add any of these in any amounts, and you could even mix up a little small batch and put it in a small Nalgene container. They have those nice little screw top lid containers that'll hold a few ounces. And then you'll have just kind of something different something delicious. I mean, can you imagine like peanut butter with dried cranberries and some roasted hazelnuts and spreading that on a tortilla? Hmm. And it'll still be packed with calories. So it's great to get that calorie fill, but to get a little variety in the flavor. Right. The variety, the texture, the flavor. Yeah. It's going to be just a different way to do peanut butter and such an easy hack. I mean, it's so easy that there's not even a recipe for it. You just add the amount you want and kind of stir it up. And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friends on the trail, Robert Lucas and Robert Reinhardt. They said, unless we begin to protect existing hiking trails and provide new ones to cope with projected demands, the hiker faces a grim future. More and more hikers with fewer and fewer places to hike. It's kind of a sad way to end the show. Well, yeah. That's life. Yeah. Life is sad. Well. No, life is good. 
<laughs> it's a mix. <laughs> it is. It's a happy mix. And a sad mix, too. <laughs> yeah, sad mix. Okay. Oh, well, yeah. Did I say what article this is from? No. Okay. Yeah. The article title is The Neglected Hiker. That's sad, too. That's sad. Super sad. Well, that's it for today. That is. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you've been on a backpacking trip, share your story at thefirst40miles.com slash story. We'll see you next time on The First 40 Miles. fire me i'm never gonna fire just because you. of my tummy it rumbles loudly but uh it is very entertaining <laughs> i guess what is it that's big right now at our kids school the, the fidget oh, the fidget cubes fidget cubes <laughs> you could send them with a matador droplet it is like a stress ball oh my goodness i'm feeling less stressed already nice oh and don't forget if you want to join us for the solve cleanup we'll be meeting saturday june 10th 2017 at nine o'clock in the morning at Sheridan Peak. And we'll have the link to that events page in the show notes today. And you'll find today's show notes at thefirst40miles.com slash 133.